609 on your Tuesday morning and as provinces across the country start to open up, we're getting an update this morning from Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, guys. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. How are you? You're staying safe and staying hidden away? Staying safe and hidden away and slowly watching uh, spring bloom outside. So, <laughs> yeah, all good. It's, it's nice to at least be able to have some warm, fresh air coming in the window. No doubt. Uh, when you open it up, right? What's it like in Ontario and in Ottawa? How are things shaping up as, as that province starts to open up a bit? Well, you know, it's it's sort of very gradual still at this point. You may remember the Ontario government put out a plan and they put it out without any date. And that led to a lot of criticism from folks who were saying, okay, that's great that you're you're putting a plan out, but other provinces are giving us dates when things are going to happen. So we're seeing a bit of a similar thing here in Ontario to what you're seeing in Alberta. The first things that will be opening up, um, things that are out in the open air, things like golf courses. Um, they're looking at, you know, how do you reopen restaurants without everybody being in them or small businesses where they're able to conduct that business by handing you the product maybe out the door socially distanced so same sort of approach of a phased approach and one where you're looking at what is the curve is it changing do we need to pull back Um, a little slower than some of the other provinces and opening up for sure but we've also had some of the higher rates out here as well Mercedes, because uh, each province seems to be very different, uh, very wildly rather, when it comes to their plans and everybody's on a DIY schedule. Have you heard anything further to perhaps uh, restrictions to interprovincial uh, travel within our nation? You know, that's a great question, and it's one that my dad brought up to me last night. He's out there in Calgary. Uh, he's 92, and he wanted to know when I'm coming home to see him because we haven't seen each other since January. I don't have a sense of that yet, and it'll be really interesting to watch some of the provinces out east that had some of the stricter regulations, especially places like Nova Scotia, uh, some of the first to bring them in, and some that were very, very tight. Um, and we actually ran into this when, when we were covering the mass shooting out there that typically when you have a situation where something huge happens like that you will have news crews coming in from all over to help um, support the local crews to cover the event we couldn't do that because even though we're essential workers there is still a provincial quarantine and if you come in you have to quarantine for 14 days Uh, and a lot of those provinces have done it because they're really under health care systems that are very very strained and they have elderly populations uh, who are vulnerable. So no sense yet to me of, of when that interprovincial travel might open up. And I know it's on everyone's mind because people have summer vacations and, and you have to kind of make a decision about what you're doing about right. it awfully soon since we're now into May. But uh, yeah, unfortunately at this point, no sense of that yet. I think they're going to watch to see what happens as they start to reopen, whether or not things spike. And, you know, we're hearing out here in Alberta, too, that you can't go camping in neighboring provinces. So is that going to change? And is that something that's happening across the country? That's as of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that was the word we got. I knew somebody who had a camping reservation in Saskatchewan and they got a message saying, nope, sorry, it's been canceled. We don't want Albertan campers out here. Yeah, I think you are likely to hear quite a bit of that because the fear is that if you're in a province that doesn't have a lot of it and suddenly you get a flood right. of people coming in, uh, that's how it spreads. And, and even here in Ontario, they were telling people don't go to your cottage in Ontario. Um, that, that it doesn't matter if you're only an hour or an hour and a half away. We don't want you traveling even inside of the province. And I know in particular for provinces like BC and Alberta where there's a lot of tourism, um, that could have some pretty heavy economic consequences. But I think they're still trying to open 
both in sector by sector. And the fear is that uh, as soon as people start zooming back and forth between the provinces, that contact tracing that will be so important to reopening gets a lot harder to do than if somebody's just in their own city and you know exactly who they've been hanging out with, who they've seen, where they work, to be able to try to control that spread. When it comes to travel, Mercedes, uh, something you covered on the West Block, uh, airlines, the airline industry did have the opportunity for the employees that had been furloughed to take advantage of the government programs about the airline industry, be it WestJet, Air Canada or Air Transat, saying we need some more support. Are you hearing that more support will be coming for the airlines and, and what that might look like? I think that's a great question. We actually asked the Treasury Board President about that directly on the show on Sunday, um, and, and they you know, kind of give us the same lines over and over about how they're they're working on things, but nothing specific. Obviously, the airlines, and in particular WestJet, I know, are, are really hurting. Um, and they're frustrated because they're saying, look, we've essentially shut down at the request of the federal government. Um, we've flown people back from overseas. We've cut our flights because we didn't want to keep going with this pandemic going on. We wanted to acknowledge the guidance of the government. But it is such a capital-intensive industry. I mean, for these planes to be flying, um, I've, I've been talking to folks in the industry, and they say that they can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. If they're not in the air almost all the time, they're not even being paid off, let alone making money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at this point, I know that the airline industry is still hoping for something. They're hoping for more than credit. I don't know that the government's approaching it that way. They seem to be giving Canadians money, but businesses a line of credit. Um, they're starting to look as well at, you know, how do you start to reopen that? Air Canada saying they expect international travel to be back at normal by Christmas. But, I mean, that's going to be a very long time after they've had to really shut it down and slow it down. Um, So still a lot of questions about how exactly they're going to handle the airline industry. They are able to take advantage of programs like the wage subsidy right now, which the government has been encouraging. But if most of your costs are in flying airplanes that aren't flying, um, that doesn't necessarily offset their costs all that effectively. Talking a little bit about money, the the PM supposed to today, isn't he announcing uh, money for the agriculture sector for farmers? Yeah, and this is a a, a big one because a lot of farmers have been uh, writing us. And one of the things that I've been hearing is saying, look, we've got to make decisions about whether or not we're going to plant stuff. If we're not going to be able to move this stuff out, we're not even going to plant it because what's the point of having uh, your crop if you're not able to sell it? Um, Now, Keep in mind that there has been, this has been designated at an essential worker status. Mm-hmm. People who are working on farms and that food uh, and our, our supply chain, despite the shortages of flour in some places, things like that, which were a function of most of that originally going to restaurants versus a shortage of it being produced, um, have, have fared relatively well. But now you also have this issue of the fact that a lot of farms rely on labor that's coming in, on temporary foreign workers. They've talked about bringing them in and making sure they're still... Uh, that help but there's still a lot of concern on farms that they're not going to have enough people um, that they're not really sure they're going to be able to move that to markets and of course you know in farming there's also the factors of the weather and everything else that can hit you and, and they're coming out of uh, some tough times as well so we'll find out exactly what's going to be out there for agriculture again thank you so much for your time uh, mercedes appreciate it as always we'll let you get out and enjoy your coffee on the patio <laughs> Thanks, guys. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of The West Block.
7.49 on the morning news. Several provinces took their first steps Monday towards reopening. Uh, many special rules, including continued social distancing, do remain in place. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken joins us now with a roundup of where we stand. David, uh, how did it go, you know, on the whole with these reopenings? Well, you know, it's slowly but surely. It's sort of a patchwork approach from province to province. I think Alberta is probably a little further ahead than many other provinces. Alberta and Saskatchewan yesterday. Um, you could drive to a provincial park uh, should you uh, have feel, felt the need. I know one of the big things in Alberta is elective surgeries are, are back on track uh, to a limited degree. Not so in every other province. Uh, next door in B.C., for example, they have not announced their reopening plans, and they won't probably until tomorrow. I think Premier Horgan there is going to do that. Ontario and Quebec, still uh, way too many uh, cases. And so Quebec was, was ready to get going yesterday, and they put off their plans for another week or so. Uh, Ontario is still not ready to put some plans out there. Uh, in Manitoba, shopping malls. Shopping malls are open. Golf courses oh. were open yesterday. So, you know, they're a little further ahead. But, you know, we asked the PM yesterday, uh, would you send your kids to school? And he said, you know, as a father, he would want to know that there were systems in place to keep his kids safe. And you think about that, I was just listening to Danielle a minute ago, for consumers, the, the stores might be open, but would you go there? And there's some new polling out this morning. It's from the States, but I think it probably applies to Canada. 78% of those surveyed said, even if the restaurants were open, I'm not going. I don't mm-hmm. feel safe. Uh, same thing with uh, retail. 66% of those non-grocery retail, this is important to point out, would not go because they're not sure if it's safe. So I, I know businesses right now have so many challenges, but here's another is a marketing issue, a, a communication issue to say, hey, uh, to consumers, to your customers, I've taken steps to make sure my employees are safe, to make sure I'm safe, and here they are. And until consumers become more confident, even if everybody opens up, I'm not sure if everybody immediately rushes right back to the stores. Uh, great. Along those lines, another great question. What about flying? I mean, you know, we're hearing cruising is going to open up as of August. Are people going to take cruises? Air Canada, once flights start again, are we going to fly? And right now, boy, Air Canada announcing a billion-dollar loss. What, what are we hearing or are we expecting to hear anything from the feds on this? Yeah, the, well, the airlines are, uh, you know, the oil and gas sector, the airlines, tourism, three sectors that are saying to the, uh, to the prime minister, we need a help. Uh, today, we're going to hear maybe some agricultural support. But as far as the airlines are concerned, I was at Ottawa International Airport yesterday afternoon as I was working on the story about the airlines. I was there for about an hour in the middle of the day, and I saw three, one, two, three passengers. That's it. Wow. Middle of the day at the airport. That's I looked crazy. at the departure. Yeah, just three. I looked at the departure board. They're not, I mean, this is, you know, Ottawa, it's a pretty major hub. You could get a flight to Calgary. You could get, obviously, flights to Toronto, uh, Montreal. Uh, that, that was about it. I mean, there's just not, people are not flying. So this is the problem. Now, I mentioned, you know, businesses wanted to make sure consumers feel good. Air Canada, yes, announced a big loss yesterday, but also announced some new regulations or new uh, steps it's going to take to make passengers feel safe, including you're going to get a mandatory temperature check before you get on a plane. There's going to be a little more room between seats on economy flights from Air Canada. I'm sure, uh, at least until the end of June, I'm sure that WestJet is going to be following suit, Air Transat. Again, all with the idea of saying it's okay, you can fly if you wanted to come to Ottawa or go to Edmonton. There are flights. Um, but there's there's going to be some steps that are being taken to make sure everybody's safe. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for your time this morning, David. We appreciate it. All right, cheers. That is David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News.
8-11 on the morning news. Alberta's phased-in relaunch plan was announced last week. Uh, so how is it being received by Calgary's businesses? This morning, we're checking the pulse of this community when it comes to business with Sandeep Lolly, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Good morning, Sandeep. Good morning, Andrew. I want to hear uh, what you've maybe heard from your membership in a second, but how about, how about you and your thoughts on the relaunch and the phases that are being put forth by the province? Yeah, you know, we're very encouraged, the collaborative leadership between the government and health, taking that approach to work together to demonstrate, you know, clear stages and how we, what a stage looks like. That was really important for a line of sight. I think it's really good to have that collaboration and continue to have that collaboration as the phases open themselves up. So we were quite encouraged with the, the relaunch plan and the fact that we're going to continue to demonstrate, you know, clarity and consistent communication between government, business, and citizens in order to be able to lead this in a way that puts the health of everybody first. Have you heard from some business leaders, some business owners, as to whether they think this is done being done the right way, or is it fast enough, or maybe you know not fast enough in some cases? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been. Uh, speaking with our membership on an ongoing basis since March 15th, and we continue to do that. And so it was nice to chat with them last week as this was coming. People were getting a bit uh, anxious to, to open up, but what we've heard is, you know, this is great, but the customer safety piece of it, so demand still isn't, uh, you know, it doesn't mean people are going to walk in the, into the restaurant, uh, into the retail shops, the businesses, especially around the restaurant side, you know, how will I, function at 50% capacity with physical distancing, you know, my revenues declined. The other uh, things we've heard is, you know, if I've already fallen through the cracks because the support programs didn't fit me, now I'm expected to reopen. So how can I ensure continued and expanded support for my business as I go through this? You know, so there's all of that. And then it always comes down to the conversation of, are my employees safe? Are my customers going to be safe? And how do I communicate that safety so I can get the demand back in the door? And I would think when you talk to your members, Sandeep, this has to be a long-term thing beyond the phase where they might open their business. But the next year, next two years, going to be challenging, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, this is where, you know, we've been very cautious to say, this is, you know, we're hearing numbers like the end of 2022, this is an 18-month recovery. You know, tw- uh, through 2022, I may see some growth, but in 21, I'm still recovering. I've got a debt burden that, you know, should I, should I not? We're hearing, you know, I'll decide in in June to see if there's a line of sight to stability of programs. One of the ones we keep hearing about is the wage subsidy, you know, especially on the restaurants retail side. Do I, you know... Will I have that through the year of 2020? So then I can use that to minimize some fixed cost. And can I carry that? Can I get that demand back? So we're definitely hearing, you know, a long-term recovery on this one for our community. And, and the businesses that we're talking to are very optimistic about opportunities in markets. They just want to have a, a solid foundation to work from. So this phase program again is helpful but what about the subsidies and other pieces that have been announced will they continue or not continue or will I be left on my own what are your thoughts on that are businesses getting enough support municipally provincially or do you think there could be more or needs to be more coming 
There needs to be, like, we're very much pushing on the, for our larger businesses because there has been liquidity uh, issues with our larger companies through BDC and EDC for the federal program. And so we're expecting an announcement on that, you know, to carry through for our oil and gas industries through the next four or five years as they stabilize the BDC $2 million loan. That one we're hearing, you know, there's, it's, very, it's difficult to get to that phase to get the liquidity. And then the $40,000 loan, it's like, well, I don't know if I, you know, I've been turned, turned away. So where, where's my liquidity? And so, and then the individual self-employed person is falling through the cracks. So there was a change in the program to say, you know, if you're paid by dividend, I'm here, but I don't meet the payroll minimum. So how do I, you know, continue to be self-employed with one employee or another um, and then really take care of my own household? So those are the kinds of things where the program has fallen, people have fallen through the cracks. I'll tell you what, time will tell. I guess we'll catch up again and see how the situation is different as early as next week, Sandeep. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you. I would also encourage folks, uh, especially in our community, to go to the Calgary Chamber website on the toolkit about Mm -hmm. powering up. That's the other thing from the businesses is how do we open our businesses? So we've got our resources that start with how do you prepare your workplace, your employees, customers, and transactions? But also there's the link there for the government resources too. So I, wanna, I want our listeners to know that there are resources there to help you relaunch and power up your business. Hop online, check out the Calgary Chamber. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That is Sandeep Lali, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. 709 now in a survey of coronavirus cases at Australian schools suggests kids might not be good at spreading the coronavirus after all. U of C researchers are now part of a worldwide study into this. And with details, we're joined this morning by pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Alberta Children's Hospital, Dr. Stephen Friedman. Good morning, doctor. Hi, good morning, Sue. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us because it's been fascinating since the start of this pandemic that we've been hearing all along. Kids didn't necessarily get sick, but they were carrying the virus and likely spreading it. And, and it seems now that might not be the case. Uh, well, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure we can extrapolate the information in this survey to make those types of conclusions. Okay. So, you know, there are some caveats in what they reported. And so while it's exciting in that there aren't large numbers of children infected and spreading it within that report uh, in those schools, I think we have to put it into context. So the, the most important first thing to note is at the time of the study, it was done in Australia during the month of March, um, and they only had a total um, in their primary schools that they were studying of one child who was infected. So that one child who was infected did not spread it to large numbers of other children is what we do kind of find from this survey, but that's just one child. And we're also not really sure about the duration of the exposure period. So the child was in school, but actually during the period of the study, the premier of that region in Australia actually encouraged all families to do homeschooling and to do it remotely like we've been doing here in Alberta for quite some time. So we're not even sure how many other children were exposed to that one individual that was infected in the primary schools. So it's a little bit of a leap and a jump to then say, well, children aren't big spreaders based on this report. Based on uh, children in general, I mean, outside the uh, coronavirus and what we're talking about and dealing with when it comes to this pandemic, what is it about uh, children that generally make them uh, what we call germ factories? Is it just the touch? Is it just their proximity? What, what is it in, in general terms with the normal colds and flus we see? 
it's it's probably children being children, right? So children are are, are social beings. They're very close to one another. They play closely. They interact. They share. They also put their hands to their mouth, their nose, their eyes, which is where they pick up much of the viruses that they then put onto the objects that they're touching, uh, which they then pass along and share to with other children who then do the same kind of thing. Uh, they touch, uh, they play, and their fingers or the object itself might go to their mouth if they're really young. But in the older kids, it's just a matter of, um, uh, of hygiene and where their hands have been and where they go and then what other children do once they've shared the, that common surface. And sneezing freely upon each other as well, I would assume. Uh, Dr. Friedman, curious then, you've launched or you're part of this uh, global study that has been launched. So what exactly are you looking for and what do you hope to find with this? So what we're trying to find um, is identify predictors of COVID-19 infection. So which children are actually infected with it versus children infected by other routine viruses. Um, And we're also trying to identify, perhaps more importantly, predictors of adverse outcomes. So we realize we're going to be dealing with coronavirus now or COVID-19 for quite some time to come. We want to be able to identify which children are at high risk. So while you opened um, the segment by saying children rarely get infected, that is somewhat true relative to adults, they do better. But nonetheless, we are seeing there are some children, particularly um, around the globe, we haven't seen lots of it here in Alberta, thankfully, but around the globe, children do get quite sick sometimes with COVID-19, and we want to be able to identify those children. Uh, but I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, doctor, but this does speak to the vast differences in, from what we know of coronavirus compared to the flu in that, uh, you know, the, the demos that we're hearing, obviously the hardest hit, the elderly in our populations. Uh, children, the numbers are, are considerably lower when it comes to those confirmed cases. But children get the flu as much as the rest of us during the uh, regular uh, season, if you will. So it is vastly different than what we've seen in the past, isn't it? You're correct there. Um, It's quite interesting that in most countries, um, they represent less than 5% of the total population in whom coronavirus or COVID-19 is detected. Um, Alberta is around 4 to 5% of of our positive cases have been in children, but that is a lot less than what we would typically see with most other viruses. And it is perplexing to scientists that we don't have the easy answer. There are numerous theories, um, but we don't have a simple answer. One interesting thing that we have found from this study that we are leading is we've looked at some of our early data here in Calgary. And while we have very few cases uh, that have presented to the Alberta Children's Hospital that have been positive for COVID-19, we have seen numerous other viruses. But notably, interestingly, the number two virus we've identified so far is non-COVID-19 coronaviruses. So other types of coronaviruses. And maybe that type of exposure in children is giving them some sort of immunity to infection or to significant or severe disease when they are infected by COVID-19. Because we've had coronaviruses on our planet for some time. So you think, is that what you're saying? Potentially some of these other coronaviruses, not COVID-19 specifically, but they may have built up an immunity to them? Kids may have? Yeah, well, there's, there, are, there are two examples, though, of coronaviruses that are much more severe. So SARS was a coronavirus from 15 years ago. And then we've also talked about something called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is currently circulating still in some areas. But but those are severe coronaviruses. But there are run-of-the-mill coronaviruses that you uh, that we would not think of any differently than any other cold that children do get exposed to on a routine basis mm. that may even account for approximately 10% of hospitalizations for respiratory illness in children. So it's possible that some of that exposure that the children are getting is why they are 
protected somewhat from this current version. And there are also some theories that adults who maybe have a hyper response to those coronaviruses or when they get to exposed to COVID-19 over time might be why some of the adults are having such severe inflammatory responses and severe outcomes. Let's uh, switch uh, gears a bit here. The Alberta Children's Hospital, where you're based, uh, I'm wondering uh, how difficult it is these days because when it comes to any hospitalization, uh, I'm understanding and I'm assuming it's the same with other hospitals, no visitors allowed, really. That must be doubly tough right now for somebody, who, a child who comes in for a broken leg and, and needs to maybe stay a night or so. Tell us about that. So so we don't have a policy of no visitors. Um, one visitor is allowed as long okay. as that visitor um, is not a visitor, not a friend, but it's a caregiver. Okay. Um, and, and we go through a process to ensure that they uh, are at exceedingly low risk for coronavirus um, so that we, we prevent individuals from coming into the hospital who may be uh, positive uh, and put our staff and other members at risk. And we then also do within the hospital something that we've adopted across Alberta Health Services, which is more universal precautions. And so um, we are um, wearing a mask 100% of the time, even if we are dealing with individuals and patients who may not be at risk for coronavirus, both to protect ourselves, but also to protect them from healthcare providers. And Alberta Health Services obviously does extensive screening every day. Um, we fill out a survey before going in to review our symptoms um, and our exposures and then do a temperature check and other measures at the time when we present to the building as healthcare providers. Well, doctor, we'll hopefully be following up with you soon as you continue to study kids and COVID-19. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you and have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Stephen Friedman, a pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Alberta Children's Hospital. 649 and as various countries start to open up employees will start to go back to work in the coming weeks and should be prepared for some changes we're joined by design director for gensler a global design and architecture firm annie bergeron joins us to talk about what offices might look like in a post-covid world hi annie Good morning. Thanks. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us. It is fascinating to think that, you know, everything old may be new again. Remember, we went from being, a, you know, like a whack-a-moles in our little cubicles to big, wide-open spaces, but that may just change again, mightn't it? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, density will take a hiatus in uh, the near future, um, but I don't think it's necessarily a trend that's going to last forever, right? So, um, but certainly when people are returning to work, um, at first they need to start to feel safe, uh, they need to feel healthy and valued by their employers. So um, we are going to see some different practices when we return to work, that's for sure. And Annie, we had to, out of necessity, work from home, many of us, on our computers and get things done remotely. That could, uh, am I wrong here, uh, thinking that it could spurn a whole new uh, sector of people who don't come back and actually stay home working from the uh, computer? I think, actually, it will probably um, bring on an era of more flexibility, right? And uh, our research, our Gensler research shows that people who have actually uh, more choice uh, tend to feel more empowered or more efficient at work. So I think if uh, we've all learned to efficiently work from home, that will, for a lot of companies that thought they weren't going to be able to or that their workforce wasn't able to be effective when they were working from home, I think now they probably have proof that they can. It doesn't mean that people will work full-time uh, from home. Uh, we feel that the workplace really, uh, it still matters. Um, but I think um, in, in, an increase in flexibility for the companies who will choose uh, that solution because it aligns with their culture, I think it'll be a really um, 
a new concept for some. And uh, now they've, we know we've proven that uh, pretty much everybody uh, can be empowered to do it. So we think that's great. That's a great development in uh, workplace design. Andy, does your research show differing thoughts or what the, uh, the workplace may look like in various countries, Canada versus others? Uh, yes, but, you know, I've really been concentrating on what uh, we are doing in uh, Canada. Okay. We are seeing things that are uh, similar. For example, our offices in China have returned to work for, they've been back at work now for a week and a half. So some of the measures that they're adopting, there are some of the measures that we are seeing ourselves adopt in North America. Well, I'll tell you what, it uh, is going to be different, isn't it? Like no matter where you're living. Absolutely. Um, so some of the um, uh, things that we're looking at to re-enter the workplace actually is, you know, as part of making uh, people feel safe and empowering uh, people with uh, ad- adapted policies is really at first, I think you'll see a de-densified workplace. So we'll make sure that people at work can be uh, farther away from each other. Um, that, of course, you know, doesn't negate the fact that the basic hygiene uh, practices that our health officials are encouraging are still in place, right? For sure. So you're coming back to work. We're giving everybody a little bit more space at workstations, at um, in meeting rooms. We're focusing on disinfecting high-touch areas. But people themselves, you know, will most likely be encouraged to wear masks. Uh, hand washing, there'll be signage everywhere reminding people to wash their hands, to not touch their face, so on and so forth, right? So there, there will certainly be a sense of new normal for uh, the short term. Uh, but again, you know, this doesn't mean that, you know, of course, once uh, either effective treatment or vaccines arrive, that people cannot start to transition to um, more, something like more uh, that we're accustomed uh, to now, right? So it'll start to look Uh, more like what we're living, uh, what we were living in uh, prior to COVID. Interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us, Annie. You're welcome. That's Annie Bergeron. She's a design director for Gensler, a global design and architecture firm. 6.42 on the morning news. Italy has begun lifting its two-month nationwide lockdown. This is the government's phase two which allows all citizen to visit, citizens rather to visit some relatives. We thought it would be a good time to check in with our voice on the ground in Italy to learn more about what life is like now. We're joined by communication student studying in Lombardy, Italy, Taylor Lay. Good morning, Taylor. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, thank you for uh, spending some time with us. I think this is the third or fourth time we've uh, spoke with you over the past uh, couple of months. Things have changed. It seems like every time we speak with you. So I'm wondering uh, what yeah. uh, you are seeing uh, these days in Italy and, uh, of course, uh, uh, what's in store with this new phase. Absolutely, yeah. So we entered phase two yesterday, um, which just looks a little, a little bit less strict, but it's still definitely a, a stage of lockdown. So we're able to now uh, drive by the houses of loved ones and have socially distanced visits um, in very small numbers. <clears throat> we're now allowed to go out for walks and runs and, um, and to kind of commute within the region at our own will, as long as, again, we're in those small numbers and within our own family, immediate family groups um, and wearing masks. But it's definitely it's provided a a welcome sense of freedom for sure. Um, And that's just the first step of many in the coming weeks to ease this lockdown. That's what I wanted to ask you about, Taylor, is it's got to feel so good to just finally be able to walk out the front door. And even if there's just a small thing that you can do, but just to get out there and and 
be able to walk around and, and see people once again. What are you hearing, you know, not just your own opinion, of course, but what are you hearing from other folks that you know? Absolutely. Um, I think I think this is a unanimous thing, certainly amongst my own friends and family, just that it's such a joy to just be outside. Um, and, and I think, too, I, I speak for myself, but I'm sure I speak for others, too, when I say that going outside now just feels like such a privilege. And, um, you know, sometimes you need to have certain privileges taken away to fully appreciate them. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I don't think anyone's taking, you know, a morning stroll or, a, you know, a, a trip to the park with their children for granted, and nor will they ever in the near future, that's for sure. Taylor, what about businesses? Are you seeing more businesses have the ability to open up or are uh, just select businesses and services open at this point? Um, so now we are able to go to different food vendors and restaurants to pick up food. So we still aren't allowed to go dine there, but we are allowed to go and pick up food, which is nice. It definitely increases the um, what we're able to kind of treat ourselves to and access, and it definitely opens up some additional businesses as well. Um, that's for the next week. I know that May 18th will be a big day um, because that's when we're going to see, you know, more more stores, more retail, more of the economy start back up. Um, <clears throat> and hopefully, you know, more and more in the coming weeks, I believe, as of June 1st, then it'll be gyms and hair, hair salons. So between now and June 1st, we'll see a lot of progress with the economy starting back up. And speaking of, I know people start to get that sense of freedom and it's got to feel good for sure. But are you hearing about businesses and, and financing? I mean, Italy was in tough economic troubles beforehand. And now coming out of this, it's going to be a very difficult go for that country. Absolutely. Um, I definitely, by no means, am an economic um, analyst or specialist. Mm-hmm. But from what I have heard, um, <clears throat> I know that there's a lot of debate over, you know, how quickly, the, kind of the urgency with which the country reopens its economy for that exact reason, um, just because, you know, it's imperative that the economy does restart. Um, and just that, you know, the government is being very cautious and, what you know, rightfully so, but there's definitely a lot of conversation around which economies should start first and, and also just making sure that the economy starts as soon as it possibly can, especially in the areas less affected. Um, so there's there's a lot of debate over that, and I think Italians are quite eager to to restart and to make sure that everything gets going again. Katie, what about uh, Taylor? Sorry, uh, what about the uh, uh, travel among the different regions and cities and towns? Are are people traveling? Or are they staying put in their towns at this point? So, um, a region in it, in Italy is kind of equivalent to our provinces, um, and we've been asked to stay within our region. So that there's a fair bit of freedom within that. Um, Of course, like I said, we still can't go in groups anywhere um, or have any gatherings or and businesses are still closed. But for instance, you could, you know, drive to a neighboring town to go for a hike. um, And there's a lot more freedom within within the regions. Um, Between regions, my understanding is that you still are not allowed to travel. um, And I believe that will also be part of what's lifted as of May 18th. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us again this morning to give us a, a little taste of what's happening in Italy. You're a few steps ahead of us, so we're hoping that uh, we, we can learn a little bit from you uh, for us as to what's going to happen here in Canada. Thanks for joining us and stay safe. You're most welcome. Take care. That's Taylor Lay, a Canadian student living in Lombardy, Italy.